What a beautiful morning after a night of storms. We're so thankful that we made it through without any more damage than what we possibly had. We are so thankful that we didn't get the damage that they had in other places. We are, uh, our hearts and prayers are with others, especially over in Mississippi and other places where they receive so much damage. We're thankful that you're here this morning. We hope that you'll stay with us not only for this session, but we'll eat after this uh, after we dismiss this morning, after morning worship, and then we'll again meet at 1 o'clock outside in the beautiful weather in order to worship God this afternoon. Stories told about a man who was audited by the IRS. One of the things that was flagged on his audit was a section, a deduction that he had taken that was simply marked bad investment. And so during the audit, the IRS guy, he looked at him and said, Sir, says, could you tell me about this bad investment for uh, $5,000? And the man said, well, yes, sir, I would be more than happy to do that. He said that uh, uh, that was what I paid in taxes last year. You know, when we think about our taxes, sometimes it does seem to be a bad investment, the things that we, that we do, the things that our government does. Really and truly, I don't know anybody who likes taxes, but we do know that tomorrow is tax day, April the 15th. We've got all kinds of taxes. We've got income taxes. We've got sales taxes. We've got our legislature here in Alabama just passed a, a, a gas tax hike, and so we hear about that. We talk about that. It's a good thing that we're not in California because they're seeking right now at the moment to pass a hike on a lot of things, one of which is on, uh, on uh, sodas, on uh, Coca-Colas and Pepsis and things of that nature. I don't know if you've read about this, but they are proposing a tax hike of 20 cents per ounce on those. And so to go to a grocery store or something and pick up a 20-ounce Pepsi or Coca-Cola, you're paying $4 in taxes if that passes. And so, you know, taxes are not something that, that, that we really like or, or, or that we want. And you know what? Our scripture this morning, it had to do with taxes, our reading. Luke did a good job in reading that this morning. But as we looked at it, we noted that there were some people who asked Jesus about paying taxes. And we also understand from this passage that there uh, were some impure motives that these people had. They didn't really care what Jesus had to say regarding taxes. It wasn't their point to, to find that out. They just wanted to trap him in his words so that they could accuse him and hopefully get rid of him. And so that was the way these people operated in, in a lot of ways. But they did ask the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And so that's what our question this morning that we're looking at is going to be. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Let's think about some background of this before we move on and talk about some applications, some things that, that we need to know. Let's first ask who. Who was it that came to Jesus and asked this question? Well, number one, we see it was the Pharisees who came and asked about it. You know, the Pharisees are those self-righteous bunch of folks who were mentioned a number of times in the New Testament. They uh, specialized in a strict observance of the traditional and written law, and, and they were quite often the foes of Jesus. We hear about them quite a bit. But on the other hand, we have another group of people who are called the Herodians there in verse number 13. The Herodians are only mentioned three times in the New Testament. 
They're mentioned uh, here in this story, Matthew chapter 22, verse 16. And they're also mentioned in the book of Mark chapter 3 at verse number 6, where the Bible simply says this, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. These two groups, the Herodians and the Pharisees, would not normally have been on the same side of anything except they had found within themselves a, a, a common foe, one that they wanted to rid themselves of. And so when we're thinking about these Herodians, we may ask, well, who are they? Well, the Herodians were some people who were ardent supporters or advocates of Caesar's rule in Judea. Uh, you see, they thought that the advantage that Rome offered them what was great and that they should give themselves or lend themselves to Rome's uh, rule. You say, well, why then were they called Herodians? Well, they took their name from King Herod, who had fallen into league with, who had uh, an agreement with Rome. And so anyone who talked about these people talked about how they were in support of Herod, who had made a league with Rome, who, even though they were conquered, he, he supported the rule that Rome had over them. And so, again, any other time, because of, uh, of the very nature of the existence of these people, the Pharisees and the Herodians would have been opposite, on opposite sides, but now they had a common enemy, and that was Jesus, of course. But next on the list, we might ask, What? They wanted to know, is it lawful to pay? Is it lawful to pay taxes? You know, when we look at that, we think about uh, paying taxes, and, and we know that it's our duty, it's our obligation to do that. And, and here, the, the Pharisees and Herodians were not asking if Caesar had a right to demand taxes be paid to him. Their question centered not around the Roman law, but it centered around the law of Moses. You see, that's what they were looking for. They wanted to know if it was lawful under the law of Moses to pay taxes to Caesar. And so the argument by the Pharisees might have gone something like this. They may have quoted from the Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy chapter 17, at verse number 14 through 15, and said it's not lawful. If we go back and we read that, we know that the Bible says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers. You shall set as king over you. It's this next part that really is where they uh, would have their argument. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. You see, the Jews must not recognize any foreigner as king, and certainly Caesar would have been a foreigner. And so they would have argued, at least the Pharisees were, would have, that it was wrong to pay taxes <coughs> under the law of Moses to anyone who was a foreign king, even to Caesar himself. But the word that's translated pay is also an interesting word. 
It's a word which literally means to give. It's used more than 400 times in the New Testament, and the vast majority of those uh, times are translated either give, gave, or given. And so what they're saying is it, it de-emphasizes their legal obligation to pay taxes and makes it sound as though they have an option to pay taxes. It makes it sound as though uh, they're, they're asking, well, should we give to this group? Uh, sort of like asking, should we give to this charity or some other charity? Uh, should we give in that way? And, of course, the Herodians would have taken exception to all of this because they saw the advantages, or at least thought they saw the advantages and privileges that they enjoyed under the Roman rule. But, but the Pharisees would have said, should we give, should we give this to, to this evil king? Should we give this in order to, uh, to enrich him and, and even to enjoy the, the, the things that we have? But now let's look at the why. We've looked at the, the, the who and the what, but now let's look at the why. We know that their intent was not one of purity. It was not to settle a dispute between the Herodians and the Pharisees. They, they were working together on this occasion. You see, they were seeking to entangle him, Jesus, in his own words. According to the book of Matthew, his account of this particular event, chapter 22 at verse number 15. And so, as we look at how Jesus responds to them, we're reminded of that, that they did not have a pure motive, that they were not literally seeking to find the question, the answer to that question, but we're reminded of that in the way that Jesus addresses them. Jesus calls them hypocrites. Here in this passage, as well as in the book of Matthew chapter 22, at verse number 18. And so we think about it, their, in their approach was, was hypocritical, was it not? And not only in the sense that they were trying to entangle him in their words, his words, but look at verses 14 and 15 again, if you perhaps have your Bible open. Notice how Mark puts it in Mark chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, when they came to him. They said, Teacher, we know that you're true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. If they're trying to entangle him in, in his words, then those words are surely far out, aren't they? They are hypocritical. And so verse 15 says, But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? And so they were hypocritical in their approach. But I suggest to you they were also hypocritical in what they practiced. They're also not just hypocritical in their approach, but they're hypocritical in what they practice. What do you mean by that? Well, in Matthew chapter 22, at verse number 20, we have Jesus saying to them, whose likeness, after they brought him the coin, whose likeness in, in inscription is this? The word likeness comes from a word, akon, from which we get our word icon, and uh, it's used in the New Testament in other places. For example, it's used in the book of Romans chapter 1 at verse 23 when Paul is writing about the Gentiles and 
the sins that they committed in, in their life. And it's in uh, verse number 23 that he says that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling uh, some things. What, were they, what did they resemble? They resembled mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The word translated images there is the same word that's used, that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 20, as well as in the book of Mark chapter 12. Whose likeness, whose icon, whose image is this? And we realize in the Old Testament that there's something said about these kinds of things. In the book of Exodus chapter 20 at verse number 4, in what we would know as the Ten Commandments, the Bible says, especially to the Jewish people, you shall not make for yourself a carved image and, and, uh, or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's on earth beneath or that's in the water that's under the earth. And so as we look at that and we look at other passages which deal with that, we know that the Jews were forbidden to use certain kinds of things, certain images. And of course, Caesar, he looked at himself as being one of the supreme rulers. They eventually came to consider themselves as God on earth. And so uh, the Jews would have had an objection to the, to the very image that was on the coin itself. Many Jews objected to using Roman coins on this very ground. And so Rome, in deference to the Jewish sensibilities that, that they had in regard to the laws of the Old Testament, of the Mosaic law, they had made a provision for the Jews to make their own copper coins without Caesar's image. Okay, So they could make their coins... They would still be Roman coins, but they would not have Caesar's image on it, his likeness, his icon on it. But, but I want you to think about something. When Jesus said, show me the coin, it seems that these folks didn't have a whole lot of problem producing one, did it? They were able to pull one out of their pocket. Somebody pulled one out pretty quick and handed it to Jesus so that he could look at it and he could say, whose likeness and whose inscription is this. You know, that sort of tells me something about these folks, does it not? It does it not say that, that being so easy for them to, to produce that very coin that, that sometimes we tend to overlook things when they benefit us? In, in other words, they didn't mind using Caesar's money for themselves. They didn't mind using it on business to enrich themselves, to, to make their living, it seems, because they carried his change in, his, in their pockets. And, and so, if they were objecting to the image and they were objecting to pay Caesar the taxes based on that, then there's some hypocritical things in regard to their practice. You know, sometimes we overlook a lot of things, don't we? When there's benefit to us. Or, or when they're... When there is, uh, uh, when we have some skin in the game, shall we say? You know, we tend to overlook uh, God's law on marriage and other things. When, when we have someone who's close to us who, who, who wants to uh, go against that, we have to be very careful. And so, 
these people, Jesus himself, calls hypocritical. Yes, they were hypocritical in their approach, but it seems even deeper they were hypocritical in the practice that they had in their own life. And so, as we look at it then, we have, we have all of this dynamic going on between Jesus and, and these people. In the book of Matthew, chapter 22, at verse 21, after Jesus asked them whose inscription or whose image was this, they said, they replied, Caesar's. And so he said to them, the words that we all remember, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the things, uh, and to God the things that are God's. Again, as we're looking at it, we understand that there's uh, something interesting in the reply that Jesus makes. Uh, do you remember I mentioned a little bit earlier that they wanted to know, should we give this to Caesar? Should we give these taxes to Caesar? And so Jesus replies and tells them that they are to render. Well, the word render is defined in the, uh, the Greek dictionaries as meaning simply to give back. They wanted to know, should we give it? And Jesus said, give it back to him. It's got his picture on it, so give it back to him. It belonged to him. The image bore his, uh, his image, and so give it back to him. And so, as we look at it, that's a little bit of the background. But now this morning, I want us to learn some things, some lessons, some things that will apply to us. As we look at this passage and we think about it, and we see what Jesus is teaching, we understand that Jesus is teaching us, them and us, something about the Christian's dual citizenship. There are some things that, that you and I have to understand. You know there are people in the United States who have dual citizen, citizenship. They may be a citizen of the United States while at the same time being a citizen of some other country. They have dual citizenship. Well, that's the way that it is with a Christian. We have dual citizenship. You see, our primary citizenship is in heaven. If we're a Christian, our primary citizenship is there. Isn't that what Paul said in the book of Philippians chapter 3 at verse number 20 where he said, Our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're a Christian, we are a citizen of heaven. And as a result of that, our first allegiance then must be to God. Not to, not to the nation, not to the worldly leaders, but our first allegiance must be to God. There are times when it's right to resist the laws of the land. Preacher, wash your mouth out. Wait a minute, are you sure? Aren't we taught that we are to, to be obedient to the laws of the land? Yes, but there are times when we may need to resist the laws of the land. Anytime the laws interfere with God's law, the Bible is pretty clear. In the book of Acts chapter 4, verse 19, going through verse 20, the Bible says, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak, or what, uh, speak of what we have seen and heard. You see, Peter and John understood where their allegiance was to lie. 
when they were threatened and told not to preach, not to teach the things that, that they were teaching in regard to Jesus, they said, we had to make a choice. And you're going to have to make a choice. You're going to have to make a judgment as well. Who do we listen to? Do we listen to God or do we listen to you? And Peter makes it pretty clear who he decided to listen to. We're going to keep on talking about preaching and teaching the things that we've seen and heard. We're going to keep on preaching and teaching the gospel. And so there may be times when we have to resist the laws of the land. In our day and time, we're swiftly approaching the possibility of that. When Christians will be forced to make a choice. When we'll be forced to make a choice, are we going to listen to what the law say or are we going to listen to God? You know, my generation's grandparents, going back to my grandparents, he, he would be 105 years old this December. He passed away a number of years ago. But going back to my generation's grandparents, they never would have dreamed, I do not believe, that our nation has taken the direction that it's taken. When they were young men and young women, and they were fighting in World War II and uh, other conflicts, they never would have dreamed that our nation would be talking about socialism or that it would be promoting homosexuality or, or, or that so many people would be um, uh, committing adultery and fornication so openly. They never would have dreamed that we would have reached the point that we have. But you know, as a grandparent myself now, I fear greatly for my own grandchildren. We have come so far so fast, and we are swiftly sliding down more than a slippery slope. And we are getting to the point that, that Christianity and everything good and godly is being denounced by so many. I mentioned in class this morning that I, I read this past week that in our nation, more people now say that they have no religion. They have no religious affiliation. They have no affinity toward God in any way than there are people who claim to be religious in some way. That, my friends, is scary. It's scary for the future of our nation. It's scary to the point that it may be that we or perhaps even our children and grandchildren will have to make a choice somewhere along the way. Am I going to be faithful to God? Am I going to stay strong in the faith? And if I do, I may have to resist the laws of our land. You know, there are places in our world who already are oppressing the the preaching of the gospel, the speech uh, of Christians. Uh, hate speech bills are being introduced in various places and Christianity and the things that we say in regard to many of the things, the sins that are so prevalent in our world are more and more becoming thought of as hate speech. Do we choose not to speak against the things that God speaks against? Or do we choose to obey Mankind. You see, we may have to make a choice, but our first allegiance must always be to God. Even though we're a citizen of heaven, we need to remember that while we wait here from, uh, for Christ from heaven, 
And while we wait for our move, our life and our activities are still in this world. And so man's dual citizenship requires some responsibility to both. It requires our allegiance to God, but where we can, it, it requires our allegiance to the, to the civil government. Uh, and even so, we need to remember that we can enjoy the blessings and the benefits of either, either heaven or the things that we have here in the United States of America without fulfilling our responsibility to both. And so we need to do that. We need to remember what Paul wrote in the book of Romans chapter 13. I'm not going to take time this morning to read all seven of those verses, but we need to be reminded that God has allowed the authorities that, uh, that are in power in the world and He commands us that we are to submit to them, uh, except, of course, as we've already uh, mentioned. And even so, we need to go back and we need to think about those first century Christians. Those early converts would naturally have been eager to renounce all of the idolatrous practices of the, uh, of the government, their, the pagan systems under which they had lived, Yet Paul makes it clear their life was still interwoven with that civil government there in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. They were not to become rebellious in their nature. They were not to be rebellious citizens, but rather every Christian is to be a worthy citizen in any state, in any nation, wherever he may be. He obeys the civil authorities not just out of fear, according to the book of Romans chapter 13 at verse number 5. But Paul says, for conscience sake, because we know that when we do so, we are indeed being obedient to God. And our goal as a Christian is not to overthrow necessarily an evil government, not to destroy the evil itself with swords or spears or guns or bombs or whatever, but rather, we are to destroy it through the leaven of the Word of God. You see, that's the tool, that's the power that God has given you and me as Christians to change the government that we have and to change the people who are around us. Do you remember what the Bible says in the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verse 33? The Bible simply says, He told them another parable. What was the parable that he told on this occasion? He says, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. You see, we continue to work within society because we still live here and we still work here. We still uh, practice life here. We are to work within that by taking the word of God and helping others to learn that. And we need to do, must do, a better job at getting that word out. In the book of Romans chapter 12, at verse 21, Paul made it clear that we're not to be overcome by evil, but we're to overcome evil with good. We're to do that. And so, now more than ever before, our own moral uprightness is crucial. The way that you and I present ourselves, the way that we live, we can't afford to give up and give in. We can't afford to become like 
those around us, just like those who are sinful, who are our neighbors. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 14, at verse 34, the Bible says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Good friends, there can be never be righteousness without righteous people. There can never be a nation that is righteous without having citizens that are righteous. But the book of Ezekiel tells us in chapter 18, at verse 24, when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. You see, Paul and Ezekiel both tell us we need to be righteous people. In the book of 1 John, chapter 3, at verse number 7, John wrote these words. He says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Deceive you in what way? He goes on and says, Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he, God, is righteous. And so in order to be a righteous person, we continue to live as a righteous person. We practice righteousness. Therefore, more than ever, because of the direction that our own nation is taking, we must allow ourselves to stand upright And we must, must, must be moral and upright people. It is so, so crucial. As we conclude this morning, may we never forget Jesus' complete statement. You know, we tend to remember the one where he said, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's because of the question itself. Is it lawful? for us to give this tax money back to Caesar? And Jesus replied and said, well, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But, but you know what? He said more than that. When he asked the question, whose likeness and inscription this is, and they said they replied Caesar's, he told them to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But he also said, and the thought carries through, render to God the things that are God's. You know, the coin had Caesar's image on it. But there's something else that bears the image of God. Right? Do you remember uh, Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27? Let us make man in our own image. We could go to chapter 9, book of Genesis, verse number 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. You see, we're to give God the things stamped with God's image. And you know what is stamped with God's image? Us. Each one of us. We're to give ourselves to God. We're to give our whole selves to God, not just some part. And so this morning, how is it with you? 
Do you realize that with God, every day is tax day? What do you mean by that? Well, everything that we are and everything that we have belongs to God. And everything we are and everything we have, we are to give back to God. Because we're made in His image. And so this morning, I would encourage you to render unto God that which belongs to God. It may be this morning that you're not a Christian. Let me ask you very simply and very humbly. Are you willing this morning to give your life to God today? To have your sins washed away in the very blood of Jesus Christ being buried with Him in baptism in order to do that. You see, we may pay our taxes tomorrow to to the civil government, but every day is tax day with God. We are to give our lives to Him. This morning, may I also ask you, many of us, most of us here, have been baptized for the remission of our sins, but are we giving Him our life every day? Are we paying our tax, as it were? Put that in quotation marks. It's just an illustration kind of thing. But are we paying God, rendering to God, giving to Him the things that are His every day? If we're not, we need to make some changes in our life. It may be this morning that there's something in your life that is amiss that you need to make right. If that is the case and you need to respond in a public way, why don't you come right now? It's together.